0: One of the fabled figures of jazz is Buck Clayton. Somehow when you think of the trumpet, you think of quite remarkable artists, and he's among them. We, we associate him naturally with the glory days of the Basie band of the 30s and indeed to the 40s. But it's Clayton himself who has a certain sound, the, you might say, the, as they say of Armstrong, the trumpet is a projection of the man himself, and it's quite an experience seeing Buck Clayton as well as hearing him, and in fact, whole history goes along. And along with Buck Clayton as guest, Uh, This morning is John McDonough, who, as you know, is a jazz aficionado already, and so he brought his records along. And so in a way, it's reflections of the life and the artistry of Buck Clayton through the music and his own memories and reflections in a moment after this message. as we hear Clayton during this very informal session with a group of musicians, including uh, Herman, somehow, how high the fire that's, you might call it how high the buck. That is indeed.
1: Yeah, well, we was trying to think of something just the opposite of how deep is the ocean. Mm-hmm. And the hi-fis were just coming out, so we just. So made. this was uh, 50? Yeah. 1954, I think yeah, it was.
2: Yeah, about
0: Fifty, Just about the time hi-fi was coming out. Yeah. Something else was happening too, wasn't it, as far as jazz is
1: concerned then, one uh, Around in the 50s? Hmm. Well, yeah, sure. Um, jazz hadn't, it hadn't, uh, Gone down like it did later years, and f- later years it got w- went way down until uh, George Wayne started the uh, Newport Jazz. Festival and that brought it back up.
2: But in the early 50s, it was the period when uh, when uh, the new music pop right. uh, really had, had swept aside a great many of the musicians oh, yeah. of the swing era, and and it was very fashionable to think of them as obsolete.
0: That's what I was thinking. Uh, that's what I meant like, I think of you long preceding that and established as a marvelous trumpet man. Were you influenced by the changes? Or they, you influenced them, the young musicians, the younger ones too. Were you yourself affected by it too?
1: By the uh, the modernists? Yeah. No. No, I I just always played the way I feel. Uh, No matter who, I worked (coughs) in Paris with a, a modern band and I had to learn all the modern songs real, real bebop song, mm-hmm. as they call it the bebop. That's right. And then I worked with Eddie Connor and I had to learn all the Dixieland <laughs> So, uh, I don't care, I, I'd learn the format and then when it come time to play a solo, I'd just play what I, I'd, I'd play the same thing if it was a funeral. I'd play just the way I felt, it. Well, of not a uh, Dixieland style, nor was it a, a modern style, it's just where I feel how you how would you describe when
0: we speak of Buck Clayton and music and the changes in the history? How would you describe your style? Who what
1: what who are your influences to begin with? Well, first Louis Louis Armstrong was the first one uh, that I really, and then Cootie also a little bit. And uh, I tried to I used to play everything at, when I was just learning. I Practice all of Louis' solos, and I could play all of them. And then uh, later on, there was uh, other musicians. Uh, Roy Eldridge, for example, was one, and Joe Joe Smith, who used to back Bessie Smith. Yeah, Joe Smith. I'd say all all mm-hmm. four was Louis. Cootie, Joe Smith, and Roy. Oh, yeah, right. mm-hmm. well, they're pretty good influences. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> were. Well, Where was it in the beginning? Where'd you come from? Parsons, Kansas. A little small town mm-hmm. in the southeast part of Kansas. But I always used to... My jazz started, I guess, in Kansas City because when I was going to school, we'd go up to Kansas City every weekend and listen to Benny Mote. And that's the first time I heard Basie. And Lips Page and all those people, and then I'd go back to Parsons. But uh, I wasn't playing trumpet; I, I was playing piano at that time. Mm. I didn't you know
2: about Kansas City, Buck? Uh, we, uh, you, and I were both in Kansas City last November right. for that Basie tribute. Yeah. And uh, you remember after the um, the big concert at that arena, some of the fellows went over to that place on 18th Street, that old yeah. Tell Tell Studs about that, because that place goes back just to the beginning oh, of Kansas yeah,
1: City music? The, the, the Union Hall. The Union Hall, yeah. It's the, it used to be the, uh, when they had separated uh, union in Kansas City, one was for the colored one was for the white. But now it, it's all the same union, but they retain that building. And it's just a hangout for all the old musicians. They go by and it, it's like a little nightclub and order half a pint of whiskey or a mm-hmm. pint of whiskey and anything you want and it's always a continuous jam session in there. Guys just go by there and take out their horn no matter what time.
0: Still goes on now.
1: To yeah. Do younger musicians come there? To yeah. hear? So there's the
0: veterans and the young ones. Right.
2: But it goes back to the 20s, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Lester jammed there, Benny mo probably jammed there. We've been talking Page. about
0: influences that uh, naturally we associate uh, Buck Clayton with Basie. And there's a comment, this is in the book, a very good book in which quotes musicians are hear me talking to you, Nat Hentoff and Nat Shapiro collecting. This is you, Buck, being quoted years ago. He says, I was with Basie from 1936 until I went into the army in 1943. It was different at the beginning. When we first started out, we didn't have good arrangers writing just for the band. We used heads we made up on the job for the first four years and we began, then began to get arrangements. And when Basie Band first came to New York, we didn't even sound in tune all the time. We had to learn ensemble technique. We had to learn how to choose good instruments. Some of us had come in with patched up horns, instruments tied together, rubber and such things, mm-hmm. and we had to learn how to record properly.
1: That's true. Well, we, we weren't making but $2 a night in Kansas Ooh, City. Really? So. <laughs> Uh, and when I came in the band, they, they were making bassy and it was nine pieces. Uh, and they were making two dollars and a quarter a night. They were making two and a quarter. So when I, I came through Kansas City, I was on my way to join Willie Bryant's band in New York and when my band wouldn't come to New York, so I'd been writing arrangements for Willie Bryant, you see. So Willie offered me a job and I said, I'll take it and I was on my way to John Willie in New York and I met Basie in Kansas City and Basie says well we're going to New York in a couple of months and Lips Page has just left he says why don't you sit in and go with us and I liked the way the band was sounding you know Lester and Joe Jones and Basie and Walsh Page Herschel yeah so I said well that's great I'll just stay here and I didn't go any further but They were making two and a quarter a night in the Reno Club, and the guy wouldn't even put up another two dollars for me, so they chipped in their quarter. Uh (laughs) And eight of them made me get two dollars, eight quarters. And uh, so that's why we'd had bad horns. We, horns <laughs> You didn't much. have the money. No, we didn't. So respect for the artists. No, oh, we didn't have any money to buy new horns.
2: Buck, you, you mentioned earlier uh, before the show started that you had had a band that had worked in Shanghai, China. Right. How did an American jazz orchestra get booked into Shanghai, China?
1: Well, it's, it was the, during the time when Duke Ellington was just becoming famous. He made Mood Indigo, and this in 30, 32 around. And uh, he just made Mood Indigo and all the early Duke things, and these records were getting over to China, so there, there was a big pianist, a great pianist, Teddy Weatherford, in China. So he was from Chicago. He'd worked with Louis, and uh, they this, this this big ballroom. It was a huge place, a gambling mm-hmm. place where they had greyhound racing in the back. Four or five different ballrooms. And so they wanted a band that was kind of like Dukes. So they sent Teddy Weatherford over to look around all over the United States. He's supposed to go to New York, Chicago. But he heard my band in California and he didn't go any further, he just hired us. And we went over and stayed two years.
2: Mm-hmm. Shanghai, Shanghai. It's yeah. kind of an open city. It yeah. was a yeah. big oh, American, a yeah. lot of yeah. Americans yeah. were. Suppose here. we have,
0: is it, you mentioned that period and uh, Basie in New York. Uh, uh, in 41, uh, there was Cafe Society downtown, Cafe mm-hmm. Site Uptown. A very marvelous man, Barney Josephson, yeah. ran those play And there was jazz, good jazz, heard by people the first time, really. And as Love Jumped Out, here's you playing with a, it's a Basie group, isn't it? Right at Café Society, 1941. I think that must have been a period, I think 1941. That was kind of a
1: a high period, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was a nice thing there. Nice uh, time for jazz, I think.
0: You say earlier. You said earlier, Buck. Oh, by the way, while we're here, uh, you know, Buck Clayton and and uh, Johnny are too kind. to I I spoke with your colleague Scott Hamilton, I called him Milo Hamilton. Yeah. you say who is Milo Hamilton? <laughs> is <what you're laughs> He's, a, he He's been an announcer in Chicago years ago. That's a slight confusion. Is That, that
2: who he was, part. Milo? Yeah, but mm-hmm. we're talking about Scott, Scott Hamilton here, right.
0: young colleague there. So you said something about jazz went down. You were saying
1: you mean that it lost an audience. It lost. A lot of popularity, yeah. At one time in New York, you could go to every nightclub in New York in about three hours that that had jazz. And and, and that included the Village and Harlem and everywhere else because there just wasn't that many clubs. But now you can't even start. It takes you three or four days now to... And then you may not cover them all, but you can get most of them. But it, it really went down, as I said, until George Wayne started the Newport mm-hmm. thing, and then people started buying more mm-hmm. records, and and it's it's, it's so t- today it's a there there is a revival. I mean, there is a, a kind of
0: renaissance, uh, isn't there? I mean, uh, the, the big bands aren't any. There are fewer big mm-hmm. bands, I yeah. suppose,
2: because of expense and what.
0: Yeah. But there are a lot of young
2: musicians playing jazz, aren't there? Yes, it is. But a lot of the veterans too are. In the in the Roy was Roy Aldridge was saying once, I think perhaps on this show that, in the late '60s, uh, he he really the middle and late '60s. He wasn't working as consistently then as he yeah. is now. And and he well. said if Coleman Hawkins. Was still alive today. He'd be, he'd be turning. He couldn't fill all the, uh, yeah, the requests right. for his, and his playing. Too. Now, and mm-hmm. but uh, they just uh, Coleman got caught in that period of the of the downslide, yeah. and there just was, wasn't much work. And he, uh,
1: yeah, that's true. He didn't come out.
0: We think of you and certain other musicians associated with Basie and other ways to uh, a few, a few times, the number of times you backed. because Billy Holiday sang with the Basie band. Think of Billy and some of that remarkable period which you made those recordings, and you were uh, with her like. Few of them there. What's your? If I say Billy Holiday, what's your first
1: reaction to Billy? Well, Billy was um, she was different than anybody I ever knew, but she was nice. I liked her. I liked her very much, and she uh, introduced us to Harlem when we first got to New York. Uh, She used to take. Myself and Lester and Freddie Green. Well, Freddie had been there before. I mean, he was in New York when we got there. But she used to take us to every every joint or whatever you want to call them, pads in New the, in the Harlem. And uh, she was tough, but nice and used all kind of different kind of languages, uh, depending on how much she liked you, what <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of language she'd use, you know.
2: Well, you were a, you were a bunch of country boys in the big city uh, in a lot of ways when you first in hit New York. New York. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, but we had been in China, and, uh, yeah, that's true. and Shanghai mm-hmm. is a big, it was like uh, Paris at uh, that time. Shanghai. They called it the Paris of or the Orient. I was thinking of uh, Billy Halliday musically, I
0: mean, what was it? And, Extra uh, something, music I
1: don't man. know, I don't know. It's just her style and, and her voice is just different. Because uh, I, I noticed that in California when I first heard of her records. Before I even knew her, and Roy made the first recording I ever heard of Billy's, If You Were Mine, I think it was, and then he made Miss Brown to You. Mm-hmm. But I could tell she was different on, on just the record. Yeah. And then when I met her, it was nice working with her, you know, because she, she used to do everything. To, when she was with bassist Band, she would just, everything the boys did, she would gamble with us and stay up all night yeah. and drink and shoot craps. But, and, but musically, and, though, mm-hmm. musically,
0: you, she was easy to work with. Is that is something? Yeah. You know,
2: yeah. I can understand why she would have been uh, unique uh, when you first heard her, because you know she was really the first jazz singer to come along and get recorded, uh, the first singer who really took liberties with a melody, but who
0: also take a, a, it could be a non-jazz song. We don't associate with jazz; it's just a ballad of some sort or it's pop tune and make it jazz.
2: Yeah, she took liberties no. with uh-huh. it. She she treated it as but an instrument. Suppose yeah, I
0: must have that man. This is Buck Clayton and colleagues uh, backing Beauty Holiday here. This is 19. What would this be? 38, 39.
2: Um, Actually, I think this is uh, the first session you did with her in January of 37. 37. 37? We hear that.
0: And that's at the uh, late 30s, Billy Holiday, Buck Clayton, colleagues. And I suppose we hear a message now, we'll return, and John McDonough along with Buck is our, our guide here with some more of Clayton recordings and music through the different years in a moment after this message. So, resuming some of the conversation and memories. And, and so, resuming some of the conversation and memories, and uh, uh, there was a lot of, of course, improvisation, a great deal of, uh, of uh, jam sessions. And there's one, uh, Jan you came across something that Buck Clayton did with Goodman rehearsals here,
2: Ad, ad Lib Blues. What, how'd this come about? You didn't remember this one, did you, Buck? Uh, no. You, mm-hmm. This is um, on an album. Mm-hmm. This
1: one with guitar? Um, yeah, Charlie Christian. Charlie Christian.
2: Um, in uh, 1940, uh, Benny called a rehearsal at the Columbia Studios. He, you, Buck and Lester and Joe, he used a lot of the bassy guys, with his own uh, Charlie Christian, his own guitarist. And um, uh, anyway, he just wanted to just try out some things. Benny hadn't been playing for a, for a while because of a back problem. So they 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 just made these recordings as just just for the hell of it, just for the the fun of it, and um, they um, so they never got released. But they were discovered about uh, three or four years ago, and somebody put them out on this LP. Yeah, no, I was thinking,
0: uh, Buck didn't remember. He never got paid for it. Yeah, I, I was <laughs>
1: just about to ask you that question. No, was I that, didn't. Uh, you know the the uh, thing Benny did the, the Carnegie Hall thing. That's right. He made that in '38. And he recorded it, but it wasn't supposed to be for sale. And years, years later, he was just rambling around up in his attic and he saw this tape and played it and made a record of it. But he sent everybody the check for for the recording but I, I don't hear anything about this last, this well, thing.
2: Here. This particular record, uh, Benny had nothing to do with the releasing it. There are a lot of people putting out records these days as I you know, Buck, yeah. uh, who just have collected the stuff on their own. They no, I was just I about know. to ask, Buck, you, you've been in so many
0: of these sessions, haven't you, uh, that, and here's the artist that work and there's delight in improvising, but somebody comes along years later, you know, who yeah. makes oh, a buck you, out you of
1: you it. Can't keep, you can't keep yeah. track of it. Mm. A lot of times we're invited to parties and they ask you to bring your horn and it's going to be a jam session and they they got a tape machine going in there that we don't even know it's there. Mm-hmm. And then 6 or 8 months later there is a record on the on the street that that you you made. You don't get we don't get paid. Can
0: anything we. be done about that? That's an that's what well, right? is so many they, they
1: they're trying to but yeah. Uh, People tape uh, things when you're in a nightclub and you don't know it. They tape things uh, when you're playing a concert and you don't know it. All you know you're playing at a mic but you don't know where that's going to backstage. Mm -hmm. Especially in France, they do that. After you leave and come back home, here comes a record that you didn't even know you made.
2: When Basie was playing that dance at the Mielbach Hotel in Kansas last November, he looked at these microphones, and there were just so many microphones, and he followed the chords, and he found a tape recorder at the end of them, yeah. behind the door, and he started <laughs> kicking over the microphones. He really was uh, very angry yeah. about that.
0: Well, he should be. I'm thinking about, well, let's hear Adley. This is one of the sessions for which Buck Clayton did not get paid, <laughs> and we hear this Adley <laughs> blues. I suppose when they call that Adley blues, they weren't kidding. <laughs> like That's Pretty loose. Charlie Christian at the uh, guitar there. And Lester Young at the tenor. And, and Lester. That would be when. That would, uh, that would have been about when. But Any idea when that might have been? No, this no, first time you, I you heard it. You can't remember well, first time you've heard it.
2: Well, actually, I think it was in the fall of 1940. 40. Well, yeah. Christian was alive, obviously. So. Did, uh, did Basie break up his band briefly in 1940, do you recall?
1: No, not. Mm. No, he broke it up shortly after 40, around 40. Mm-hmm. But he How did. Long see, I was with him till 43, mm. and he broke it up shortly after I left. Mm. Mean now, resting. did you
0: rejoin him after you, you were in the Army and were No, War, I never did. You didn't? No. So you were for seven years or
1: so. Yeah. So. And then I went with Jazz Philharmonic. And I, I liked Basie's band, but I liked to play in smaller bands because he played more solos. Mm. You know, when you're with Basie, you you got fourteen guys up there, and you don't get to play as many. So, but then you six worked, pieces you play yeah, all the
0: time. Then you worked to say jazz. You worked with Norman Grants for a while. The tour. Right, yeah, that was a very exciting period too, jazz and Verve, hitting various. Yeah. Bass. Oh yeah. yeah it, well, the idea was playing it in concert form. Right. Yeah. I suppose is that that comes up a lot, isn't it? Is, is this, here you're playing, uh, no boozing, no noise at the tables. It's something different, isn't it, when you play in
1: contrast to nightclub. You mean in a concert? Yeah. Well, yeah, but we always had something backstage. Yeah. I mean,
2: <laughs> well, you know, studs, Shirley Scott uh, said once uh, to a um, young girl called Linda Prince up at Northwestern that uh, jazz began to lose the black audience when it went into the concert hall. Uh, and I mean, you look at the audiences you play for, uh, but probably there aren't many, uh, many black people in the audience, particularly young blacks.
1: Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why it is really. A you think it's the concert? I don't think it's that. Well, that's what Charles oh, I yeah.
0: think that's that's a mm-hmm. a stereotyped approach. I mm-hmm. think. I think it's something else happened.
1: I, I don't know what, what do you it think? Is. I don't know. I've, I've been trying to figure that yeah. out too.
2: I know Roy Eldridge has made that observation. George Ween uh, has made that observation. He says when he books Duke Elling- when he would book Duke Ellington or Basie or Hawkins or Eldridge, it would be a 80, 90% white audience they play yeah. for. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anybody, uh,
1: that's true. Though. I
2: think he, uh, Ween just came to the conclusion that the young black is interested in contemporary Well uh, that's something else. Not oh, in now when you're the talking past, about contemporary,
0: no. not a question of where it is, it's mm-hmm. the fact that it's contemporary. Right. I think pre-phone. they're just not
2: interested in, in previous right. styles. That's uh, it, yeah. uh, and, and for some reason, the, the white audience is more drawn to that.
0: The reason might be, or many, it might be association with certain kind of put-downs of the past too, possibly. Mm-hmm. The very fact that he worked for two bucks and they didn't get the two bucks, two and a quarter. Mm-hmm. That itself, I guess, young kids, in a way, want well, to forget it. They yeah. shouldn't, but that's yeah. natural. Mm-hmm. Coming back to uh, Buck Clayton, the places, England, you mentioned, you, you want to hear a record with Humphrey
1: Littleton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do, because me and Humphrey get along very well, you know. And
2: Humphrey's an English band leader. You ought to tell us something yeah. about him because I'm not that familiar with him.: Well,
1: Humphrey. he's a he's a, he's a real beautiful person, and and he's got a, a really a jazz band, and nothing modern, just just straight jazz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, he and I used to play duets and things like that together. I don't know. I guess I worked with Humphrey about two years, and I'll probably go back.
2: Well, you'd go in and just sort of use his band as... as. as no, I work with him. Yeah. I don't want to use his band. Really? Uh, not by myself. Well, no. you were, in effect, the guest soloist in his band. Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: So we get, and we come, of course, to London now, uh, uh, jazz in England. Jazz in Europe, of course, has been big for a long time, hasn't it?
1: Much bigger than here. Yeah,
0: much bigger than here.
1: Much bigger than New York. Uh, when, at one time... There was only about t- two or three organized bands in New York, like Eddie Condon Club. You'd find uh, an organized band, and maybe two or three more. But in England, there must have been at least forty different bands mm-hmm. that uh, that are organized. Mm-hmm. You know, so. and uh, they seem to have enough. Uh, support from the people mm-hmm. to keep on keep them going. Now these are English
0: musicians with you, yes. you're here, and these are, yes. this, is, this is Carol's Capers. This would mm-hmm. be when, w- was it in the 50s you were there? 50, yeah, about. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute,
1: 50.
2: Well, I think these, well, this was recorded in 66 or so, or in the middle 60s, wasn't it? For, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it Dun- was, Dun- 60, yeah,
0: was yeah. you were there several yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. Carol's Capers. That's Buck Clayton in England. But there's something I must read here. It's John Hammond comment about. It's for a Vanguard album, Buck meets Ruby, Ruby Braff and Buck Clayton and colleagues. It's Hammond writing about my guest, Wilbur Buck Clayton. Although his technique and range are practically unlimited, Buck Clayton is one trumpet player who has always performed with taste and warmth. High notes and other forms of musical exhibitionism, he spurned, and as a result of it, has taken the public a long time to realize one of the few really great improvisers on the jazz scene today. And when this particular album was made, it's been 17 years since Buck made his debut with Basie's band. Now in those days he was celebrated chiefly for his muted choruses and that's when we heard the mute there and the bell, and the background of vocalists. With the small bands of Teddy Wilson, the Kansas City Six, and behind Bailey Holiday and the late Mildred Bailey, and as guest in the Carnegie Hall concert of Goodman 38, and thirty-eight, we'll hear a part of that later. Buck's horn has intensely personal sound, intensely personal sound that's never been matched by the others. And as a composer and arranger, he's contributed to the books of both Basie and Duke Ellington. And uh, this is fifty-four. He's writing, and so that
2: that's pretty good. That's well, about right too. Well, Buck, uh, you composed that. One we just heard, Candy. And no, Candy
0: car- Coming Up. Car- Carol's, caper. oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Carol's, Carol's Capers. Oh, Carol yeah, Carol's Capers. Now, this Capers. one, one for which Hammond made these comments, this album, mm-hmm. there's something called
1: Candy that you yeah, did. Yeah, that's my daughter. That's your daughter. Mm-hmm. She was a little then, but she, when was this made? 54. She was born in 53, so she oh, was a year nah, old. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> his then a song of celebration. <laughs> She's got two little babies of her own now. She lives in Oakland, California, going to school out there. This is uh,
0: Buck Clayton's tribute to his child.
2: That's right, and and Buddy Tate's on here.
0: Here's Buddy Tate and uh, Ruby Braff, the other trumpet, and Benny Morton at the trombone, and Bobby Donaldson, and Jimmy Jones, piano, and primarily a father's tribute to his daughter. So we bring it down with the bass, and we might say that's a beautiful tribute to a little girl. (laughs) But Buck, I'm thinking, here we are, the hour goes so quickly. And perhaps one last thing, we spoke of that concert, the Spirituals of Swing concert, back in 1938-39. first time at Carnegie Hall it was jazz, and Hammond gathered blues artists and spiritual singers and bands, and there was Buck Clayton there with bassy men. You remember that moment? Remember that
1: time? This is the to swing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Sure. Uh, I, that's the first time I ever saw Big Bill Brunsie. Do you remember Big Bill? Yeah. He didn't have a tuxedo. He came there no. and had somebody else's up uh, He had to borrow somebody else's yeah. tux. Did he impress you? Oh, yeah, uh, I yeah, liked him. Big Bill. He, I used like to, him. he used to come
0: here a lot. And yeah. And I said, he remembered that very well. He they brought him up, he had been. He came from Scott, Arkansas. Scott, yeah, no, Little, Little Rock, and mm-hmm. before that, Mississippi, Chicago. And Hammond brought him, he'd never been to New York before, but he just got up and he sang.
2: Yeah, I, he was big, big man. That's the first time I ever heard him. Mm-hmm. I think Hammond had gone down with Goddard Lieberson to look for a Blind Boy Fuller, or, or Robert Johnson. And Johnson was dead. Yeah, and they found Bill. Which
0: they funny. found Bill instead. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the, uh, the Christian singers were there, too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, that was a... My yeah. Helen Hughes was there, too. Yeah. yeah.
0: But here, then, is Don't Be That Way. It's Buck Clayton and your colleagues. This, this is the way we say goodbye for now, just for now. Thank you very much, Buck right, Clayton. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to John me. McDonough. Thank you Thanks very it. much, too. Thank you.